Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to come to an end of another study, Father. We appreciate each time we have a chance to see your word presented from end to end, the whole counsel of what you've provided. And it is our wish, Father, that one day we will have looked from Genesis to Revelation, everything that you've provided in an in-depth and consistent way. And tonight, Father, one more of the building blocks in that path has been completed. That is the book of Exodus. And we thank you for the marvelous things you've shown us over the last several months as we've studied through this book. And tonight we know there is still more ahead. And we look to the Spirit, Father, to teach us, to open our hearts, to give us a cause to rethink whatever we've assumed and whatever we may have heard before that is not consistent with your word. And to be teachable in all things so that we may grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. We may follow you in truth and in spirit. We may be those that would be ambassadors to the life you've given us through Christ. We ask, Father, for the the courage, the knowledge, the inspiration, the guidance to serve you in those ways. Through what we hear today, in your word, and in the months to come, Father, as we take a break, I pray we'd have um, the opportunity to use all that we have been taught, to put it to work in some way. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, our story of Exodus is coming to a close. This is the story of Moses and of Israel, freed from slavery, with great power and great miracles, brought into a covenant, given a new relationship to the Lord through his law, and all the remarkable things that we've seen along the way. In fact, as I reflected on the study in preparation for tonight, I thought I should encourage you to revisit the study at some point in the future when you have a chance to listen again. I think you're going to find there were probably a number of things that escaped your notice the first time, and that's even if you were here every week. But tonight we've got six chapters of Scripture to cover. And if you're wondering how we're going to get through so much ground in an hour, the answer is simply we're not. Not in the way we normally do. We're certainly not going to expound on every verse. We are going to read every verse because, after all, this is verse-by-verse ministry. But most of the material that we are looking at tonight is material that we covered in prior nights. In fact, it's almost a word-for-word repetition of things that we covered in chapters 25 through 31 in the book of Exodus. And specifically in the construction or the instructions for the building of the tabernacle. So as we read through the chapters we're covering tonight, and we're looking at so much repetition, we're not going to pause to cover most of it. We're only going to stop to note how Moses is so attentive to the instructions he was given. And then at points along the way, we are going to find opportunity to discover some new things. There are places where we can teach in chapter 35 in more the traditional way we've covered the rest of the chapters, because there's quite a bit new in chapter 35. But toward the middle of that chapter and onward, we'll read the rest in two large sections. And at the end of each section, we'll be able to cover some interesting things from that section. At the very end, we're all going to celebrate, concluding another book of Scripture. I know I am. So let's begin by remembering what transpired in last week's lesson. In last week, we studied the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord at the mountain. They had broken his covenant in doing so. And so the Lord told Moses that the people would have to go forward into the wilderness and toward the promised land, but he was not going to go with them and he was not going to dwell with them. And as a result, the tabernacle would not be built because it wouldn't be needed if you're not having God dwell with the people. In response to that judgment, Moses went to God. He interceded. He appealed to the Lord for mercy and grace. And then the Lord responded to Moses's request by granting that new covenant, a covenant of grace to him personally and to the nation of Israel. But in the granting of that covenant, if you remember, God reserved the right to extend his grace to whom he chooses but not all will receive it. It was not an extension of grace to every living member of the nation of Israel. From that fact, we arrive at the remnant, as Paul describes it, that subgroup within Israel who are the believing element within the nation who have received his grace in keeping with that promise. Meanwhile, in that discussion with Moses, God renewed the covenant of law as well. So though the Jews had broken that covenant, Now God was willing to renew it, to reinstate it. And because he was willing to do so and he did reinstate it, now the building of the tabernacle can go forward. This explains why breaking and then renewing the covenant, that story of the breaking and the renewing, is sandwiched between a description of the building of the tabernacle and the actual 
activity of building the tabernacle. Because if there had not been a renewing, there would have been no need to go to the rest of it. And so that brings us now to chapter 35, the beginning of the construction of the tabernacle. Let's begin there. We're going to just read the first three verses. Verse 1, Then Moses assembled all the congregation of the sons of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a holy day, a Sabbath of complete rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall not kindle a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. So as construction begins, the very first thing Moses tells the people is a reminder that they have the obligation under the law to observe a Sabbath. So even as they go about the construction of the tabernacle, they cannot let that work take precedence over the observing of the Sabbath. Remember, both of these are rules that come out of the same law. But Moses is making clear that the Sabbath is not to be violated in the spirit of keeping another aspect of the law. In fact, no instruction in God's word can be used as an excuse to violate some other instruction in God's law. The nation of Israel had been given both the Sabbath and the command to build the tabernacle. So they had to observe both. And in anything we've been given in God's word, though we're not under the law, nevertheless, in anything we've been given as part of the covenant we have through Christ, or for that matter, anything we have as a personal conviction of the spirit, those things we need to do. James says if we did otherwise, it would be sin. And so we must do what God has put in our hearts or what has been spoken in Scripture that concern us. But we must perform all of those things in union with the rest of it. We can't use one command to excuse our violation of another. I've heard Christians excuse the lack of consistent Bible study by claiming that they don't like to spend too much time in study of God's word because, after all, we're called to be doers of the word not merely hearers, so they excuse their own lack of scholarship by pointing to other instructions in the Bible that command us to live out our faith as if they are in opposition. And you may have heard similar things said in other ways where the studious Christian is set in opposition to the active, busy Christian, and they're seen as somehow an all-of-one or all-of-the-other dichotomy, but that is not what Scripture has to say. That is taking one instruction of Scripture and setting it against another, making one the enemy of the other. Clearly, that's not the way we're supposed to live. Scripture tells us to be both lifelong students of the word and those who would live it out actively, not one or the other. In fact, you can't do one without the other, not successfully. So having set that expectation for the people, Moses then instructs the people to contribute to the building of the tabernacle. And look at what comes from that instruction. Verse 4. Moses spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of willing heart, let him bring it as the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, and blue, purple, and scarlet material, fine linen, goat's hair, and ram skins dyed red, and porpoise skins, and acacia wood, and oil for lighting, and spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and setting stones for the ephod, and for the breastplate. Let every skilled man among you come, and make all that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tent, and its covering, its hooks, and its boards, its bars, its pillars, and its sockets. The ark, and its poles, the mercy seat, and the curtain of the screen. The table and its poles and all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand also for the light and its utensils and its lamp and the oil for the light and the altar of incense and its poles and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the screen for the doorway at the entrance of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its bronze grating, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its sockets and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle and the pegs of the court and their cords. The woven garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garment for Aaron, the priest and the garments of his sons to minister as priests. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel departed from Moses's presence. Everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him came and brought the Lord's contribution for the work of the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. Then. All whose hearts moved them, both men and women, came and brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and bracelets, all articles of gold. 
So did every man who presented an offering of gold to the Lord. Every man who had in his possession blue and purple and scarlet material and fine linen and goat's hair and ram skins dyed red and porpoise skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver and bronze brought the Lord's contribution. And every man who had in his possession acacia wood for any work of the service brought it. All the skilled women spun with their hands and brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet material and in fine linen. All the women whose heart stirred with a skill spun the goat's hair. The rulers brought the onyx stones and the stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece and the spice and the oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. The Israelites, all the men and women whose heart moved them to bring material for all the work which the Lord had commanded through Moses to be done, brought a free will offering to the Lord. So Moses tells the people that the Lord has asked for a collection to be taken among them for the purpose of funding or supplying, I guess you'd say, the material for the tabernacle. And notice the collection is to be taken, it says, from those who have a willing heart, it says. And the word for willing in Hebrew is nadib, which literally means to be inclined toward generosity, to be inclined to be generous. Moses was to seek, therefore, a collection from generous hearts from within the people. Now, the list of items, as you may have noticed, include all the essentials that were needed for the tabernacle in accordance with what God had directed earlier in chapters 25 through 31. So what are the odds that every kind of such diverse materials would have just happened to be available within the population of Israel and offered up in this way? What are the odds? I mean, wouldn't you expect that this were your project? You'd put out the words, you'd say, we need all of these things, and you'd have at least a few things missing on the list. Well, I really didn't think I'd get porpoise skins after all. That's a bit odd. No, you had everything show up in this list. Everything. Now, clearly, we know why. The Lord had sovereignly planned for the people to have these items when they left Egypt. And as you remember, we said that's where they acquired them, from the Egyptians. But it's not enough to simply acknowledge, oh, yeah, well, the Egyptians gave them everything. How did he make sure they had everything they needed to the same amounts and to the right kinds? How did the people who were handing them these materials in Egypt know, oh, honey, make sure you don't forget the porpoise skins. They're going to need those. The only answer we have is that God in his sovereignty makes these things happen to fit his purpose. And then Moses says in verses 21 and 22, That the items were given freely by those whose hearts were stirred and whose spirits were moved. Now, the word translated stirred in verse 21 is nasa. It literally means to be lifted up, to be bear, to bear weight or to lift something up. It would in this context, it conveys the sense of an outside force acting on the person's heart, lifting it up, causing it to want to do something. Of course, we know who that outside actor is in this case. Self-evidently, it's the Lord's spirit, the actor in anyone's heart, for that matter, moving the hearts in the direction they needed to be moved. Then later in the verse, it says from every spirit that was moved and those who had that moved spirit came forward. So when you look at the verse in totality, you see the Lord moving or stirring or lifting people's hearts, causing men in their spirit to then go act in accordance with that movement, with that spirit leading And in verse 22, it says all of those whose hearts were moved in that way came forward. Notice that throughout the passage I read, throughout that long passage, you see repeated mentions of every man, everyone, all who had something that was needed came forward. What the text is making clear is there are no holdouts. The one family that maybe had a good supply of porpoise skins didn't sit on the supply. They made sure their supply was included in the offering. Everyone comes forward willingly, it says. Everyone participates. So literally, you're looking at a 100% participation rate among a population of people that's numbered roughly at 2 million. And then in verse 29, Moses sums up the process by emphasizing that this offering to the Lord was a free will offering. Now, to our modern ears, that phrase carries loaded and often distorted meaning. And many have assumed that this term means someone acting entirely free of outside influence, including free of God's influence. 
free will is often defined in that way. Men acting completely without any outside influence, including no influence from God himself. But that is not an accurate definition of the word. That is a common understanding of free will in the culture and particularly in the church culture today. But it is a myth. It is not the biblical understanding of the term. Many teach that God created man with that kind of fully independent will. In fact, you'll even hear people throw around the comment that it is a sign of God's love for us that he has given us such complete, independent, free choice. It would be unloving, they would say, for God to intervene in men's lives and override our free will. That would be a sign of God being unloving. That's the common view. So free will, in in common terms, is defined as men acting outside even God's influence, and they argue that that has to be the way it is, for if God did anything other than that, he would be unloving. This passage we just read sets the record straight and corrects the false notion of what I just articulated. First, the definition of the Hebrew word free will means a voluntary offering. That's the definition of the word, voluntary offering. It is the opposite of a compulsory offering or a mandatory offering. That's the definition of the word. So Moses is saying that these people came voluntarily and made their gift. It does not have anything to say, though, about God's influence. None whatsoever. The term free will in this context does not mean free of God's influence. It means free of man's influence, free of compulsion from another man. And that's the definition of the word. The text says plainly in the verses we've already read, the Lord orchestrated these things. Self-evidently, the Lord moved and stirred and prompted and made sure they had the materials back in Egypt. He's been planning this thing since the foundation of the earth. There's no chance it didn't just work out for him. He has it planned. And in the moment when he needed it, he stirred the hearts and look, 100 percent participated. What were the odds that if it were truly and entirely up to these individuals and God had no influence on it whatsoever, that you would add a 100 percent participation rate from Jews, I might add. So free will does not mean an offering that is absent God's influence. It means absent compulsion. It means it's voluntary. The second thing we need to deal with here is this false notion that God's love is somehow evidenced by his unwillingness to intervene in our free will. It's a crazy notion. The Bible's definition of love never includes any mention of free will whatsoever. Love in the Bible is defined as sacrificing oneself for another God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The Bible says in Romans 5, 6, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, intervening on our behalf before we even knew we needed it. Furthermore, In our own personal experiences as parents raising children, which is a good analogy to God raising us, in a sense, that experience tells us that the truth is absolutely the opposite of this silly notion that God loves us so much he won't interfere with our free will. If you love your child, do you show that love by refraining from intervening into your child's free will? If you love your child, do you allow them to rule themselves? Your child would certainly love it. I mean, at least at first, right? At least at first. And if you ask your child, how would I best show my love to you? You're likely to hear them say to you, well, just leave me alone and let me do what I want. Hence the source of that thought. Telling God what we think love should look like from his side. Let us do what we want. That's what a loving God would do. It's man-made nonsense. Immature children, uninformed of what the word says, have gone off and proposed a rule for God concerning what love looks like. We have said that God shows us love by not intervening into our free will. Sounds like a three-year-old, doesn't it? Or a (laughs) 15-year-old. They're very much alike, actually. It is the same lie, born out of pride, that the enemy sold in the garden. So what is the truth? Well, we know from experience, a healthy, happy child is created when a parent frequently intervenes to control their will. Parents are constantly imposing their will on their child, and they do so, why? Because they love their child. 
What do we say about a parent that does not control their child's free will? We say they are bad parents. So if we know that it's a good thing when imperfect, weak human parents intervene to control the will of their child, then why do we say it's a bad thing for a holy, perfect, wise, and strong God who has the power to lead his children into all righteousness to intervene in our will? It makes no sense. Never mind that it's completely outside the counsel of Scripture. So the Bible says we were helpless to save ourselves, so the Lord had to intervene to save us. Left to our own free will, we would all perish. So we thank the Lord that he loved us so much that he intervened to impose his will upon us, calling us to faith and driving us into sanctification. So in this case, you see that playing out in another context. The Lord stirred the hearts of Israel to do the right thing so that they would do what he asked so that it would be to their benefit that they complied. And when they did so, they did so willingly. As a personal response, as something done without compulsion from anyone else, and yet stirred by God, prompted by God, directed by God. And with that response, the Lord ensures that Moses and the people receive what they need to do the work he's given them. And so now it comes time to do the work. And in doing the work, they need a workman. They need more than one. They need a team. And so that's where we go next. Verses 30 through 35. Then Moses said to the sons of Israel, see, the Lord is called by name. Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, and of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all craftsmanship, to make designs for working in gold and in silver and in bronze, and in the cutting of stones for settings, and in the carving of wood, so as to perform in every inventive work. He also has put in his heart to teach both he and Oholiab, the son of Asimach, of the tribe of Daniel. He has filled them with skill to perform every work of an engraver and of a designer and of an embroiderer in blue and in purple and in scarlet material and in fine linen and of a weaver as performers of every work and makers of designs. So just as God's spirit led the people to give, now you see his hand guiding the workmen to craft exactly what he called for them to build. And we've already heard back in the earlier chapters about God saying he would call and he would equip Bezalel to lead the effort. And here we see it now happening just as he said it would. And it says at the beginning, he filled this man with the spirit. Verse 31, he filled him with the spirit of God. The term filled with the spirit is another frequently misunderstood term in Christendom. When used in the context of a preparing of someone to respond to the call of God so that they can go do a work God has for them. When you see it in a context like that, filling by the spirit simply means being controlled. By the Spirit, being controlled. We have some very similar things we say today. For example, today you could say someone is filled with jealousy, right? What do you mean? You mean they're controlled by it. You mean that their actions are now being driven out of that source. In the same way, when we say that someone is filled by the Spirit in a context of them acting to do something God has called them to do, we're looking at God saying, I have controlled them now by my Spirit to ensure that they work in a way that I want them to work. Bezalel is filled here, therefore he's controlled here by the Spirit for the purpose of building the tabernacle. And in the filling of the Spirit, he acquires four new things, things he didn't apparently have before, we can assume, because they come as a function of the filling of the Spirit. First, wisdom. Second, understanding. Third, knowledge. And fourth, craftsmanship. Let's define each of these briefly. Wisdom refers to the ability to make wise judgments, insightful decisions based on experience. Solomon, for example, had wisdom, God-given wisdom. Our elders in our churches are expected to rule because they acquire wisdom after living many years, making many mistakes. That's experience and judgment that translates into wisdom. Understanding is discernment or the ability to reason through a set of facts and then appreciate their true significance. A gifted Bible teacher could be said to have an understanding of God's word. Uh, Joseph and Daniel had God-given understanding of the dreams God gave Gentile rulers. They could look at a set of facts, reason through them, and make a proper conclusion concerning their meaning. That's understanding. Knowledge is the acquiring of learned facts and then the application of those facts. Luke, for example, the author of the Gospel, was a doctor who demonstrated a knowledge of the facts of Jesus' life. In fact, he said he went out to acquire that knowledge, to do research and to come back 
for Theophilus and tell him, this is what I have learned concerning the life of Jesus. He endeavored to collect that knowledge. And then finally, Beziel was given this gift of craftsmanship. That's just the skill of working in raw materials to create finished goods. So in his case, you notice it goes deeper in discussion of that piece of the craftsmanship. It says he was gifted to work in silver, bronze, stone, wood, setting precious stones, carving and other inventive works. It's almost as if he could do anything. Now, normally a craftsman, a good one, would have devoted the better part of a lifetime to becoming good in one of those, to becoming an artisan in some material. Bezalel is going to have the ability to do all of these things with great skill. Is there any doubt at this point that the Lord has the capacity and the desire to override our will so that through his spirit he can accomplish something in us? I mean, is there any doubt at that? In fact, do we have any problem with that? Would we not like to have that? How else would you explain this man's ability to do all this amazing stuff? Out of the blue, we would assume. Because I have to imagine, though it doesn't say it clearly in the text, that this man was not previously gifted in these ways. And the reason I have to assume that is God's glory would have been complicated if the man had already done many of these things. And now it's saying that God has filled him for the same purpose. It makes much more sense to consider he may have just been an average shepherd who suddenly shows up with a tool belt and pencil behind his ear and he's ready to build something and everyone says, who do you think you are? God gave me a bunch of abilities. Check this out. Look what I can do. Much in the same way Jesus picked tax collectors and fishermen to be apostles because he wasn't looking for skilled men. He was looking for men who would follow him. And there's a big difference. Uh, God's more than capable of giving us the skill. In fact, as Paul says, in our weakness, he's made strong. So there's a, a distinct advantage for him in picking the weak over the strong so that when the weak do things strong can't imagine a weak person can do, the strong are shamed and the weak are giving God glory. And in fact, in the strong's mind, they start to forget who's really doing it. With him, the scripture says, God also raises up other men, other gifts. It's not just one guy, of course. And this pattern is something we discussed in an earlier lesson. It just bears repeating here. God's work never goes unfinished for the lack of men or materials. God calls for men. He makes provision available. But there's no work of God that's been shelved because God's up in heaven saying, if only I could have found somebody. If only they had been talented enough to get the job done. It doesn't work that way. And we'll see that now in the opening of chapter 36. Look in verses 1 through 7. Now, Bezalel and Oholiab and every skilled person in whom the Lord had put skill and understanding to know how to perform all the work in the construction of the sanctuary shall perform in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. Then Moses called Bezalel and Oholiab and every skilled person in whom the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him to come to the work to perform it. They received from Moses all the contributions which the sons of Israel had brought to perform the work in the construction of the sanctuary. And they still continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning. And all the skillful men who were performing all the work of the sanctuary came each from the work which he was performing. And they said to Moses, the people are bringing much more than enough for the construction work which the Lord commanded us to perform. So Moses issued a command and a proclamation was circulated throughout the camp saying, let no man or woman any longer perform work for the contributions of the sanctuary. Thus, the people were restrained from bringing any more for the material they had was sufficient and more than enough for all the work to perform it. What a great problem. <laughs> Moses tells the workmen first begin the construction and then even as they are working, the earlier command to go bring everything that was needed had never really been countermanded, so they were still bringing. And even as the work begins, every morning it says another contribution awaited the workmen. So the guy working with the priestly garb had another pile of material that they needed to work from. And they realized after a short time, we've got more than enough, and they're still bringing it. And so Moses sends the word out to stop. This reminds us of Paul's statement in Ephesians, doesn't it? Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. God never has work go unfinished for lack of supply. God supplies what is required for his work. He can always do more in terms of supply than we can ever imagine or expect. But don't overlook the fact in this text that God chose to deliver that provision through the hands of individuals who had to respond to the Spirit's leading. So we don't want to sit on our supply 
and assume that God's going to raise it somewhere else simply because he has the capacity to do so. The fact that he can raise money without your help or my help doesn't acquit us for failing to support God's work when the Spirit leads us to do so. We are expected to be as generous as these Jews. Eventually, Moses says, turn off the spigot because we have more than enough and that's all that we need. And therefore, collecting more than was needed was deemed not helpful in this case. I think that's a powerful corollary to what I just said a moment ago. There is a counter principle at work here that a ministry or any work of God should not seek to obtain more than it needs to supply for the work God has commanded it. Ministries are not banks. The goal is not to store it up. Uh, We're concerned with good stewardship, good husbandry of our funds, of what we have available. But we endeavor to pretty much spend what we make in a year. There's a little buffer, but not to sit on excess money and feel good about it. That's not helping the ministry, certainly not helping the work we've been called to do. We are called to be funnels, to receive and then pour it out again in a focused way based on the commandment God has given us or the direction he's given us. When the supply exceeds the needs that we're faced with, we don't want to seek more. Because if we can't use it, we need to allow it to go somewhere else where it can be used. What good is it if it just sits in a bank? Now, that can be difficult to manage precisely, but in general terms, we ought to try to make that the focus of of any ministry. So don't sit on our supply. Let's be generous when God calls us to be. But when we have enough, we don't need more. God takes care of of the details. Now we enter the chapters devoted to the construction of the tabernacle and its furnishings. The order of the description is different than the order in which it was spoken to Moses. So if you were to compare chapters 25 and 31 with the end of chapter 36 and into chapter 40, the order of the items is different in one set of chapters versus the other. The difference in the order is in keeping with the difference in the purpose of the two narratives. In the earlier part of Exodus, the Lord is describing the tabernacle in parts to Moses, and his order is based on an inward, outward design from the Holy of Holies moving outward to emphasize that the Holy of Holies is the heart of the tabernacle. So he started there and moved outward. Now, in this part of the narrative, Moses is describing the work that was done to construct the tabernacle. So he is describing it in the order in which the work was accomplished. So they built some things first and then some things next and some things next. And in the order that it was built is different than the order it was described in the earlier chapters. That's the significance of the variance. So in this next section, you have the work on the tabernacle and its furnishings in chapters 36, the rest of 36 through 38, while the priesthood garments are in chapters 39 and 40. I'm going to read those chapters in those two sections. And after each section, I'm going to make a few observations as we finish this book. So. You get to sit back, relax, listen to the melodious, some would say monotonous voice, and we're just going to enjoy four and a half chapters or so of Scripture. Verse 8 of chapter 36. All the skillful men among those who were performing the work made the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twisted linen and blue and purple and scarlet material, with cherubim, the work of a skillful workman. Bezalel made them. The length of each curtain was 28 cubits and the width of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains had the same measurements. He joined five curtains to one another and the other five curtains he joined to one another. He made loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. He did likewise on the edge of the curtain that was outermost in the second set. He made 50 loops in the one curtain and he made 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that was in the second set. The loops were opposite each other. He made 50 clasps of gold and joined the curtains to one another with the clasps. So the tabernacle was a unit. Then he made curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. He made 11 curtains in all. The length of each curtain was 30 cubits and four cubits, the width of each curtain. The 11 curtains had the same measurements. He joined five curtains by themselves and the other six curtains by themselves. Moreover, he made 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that was outermost in the first set. And he made 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that was outermost in the second set. He made 50 clasps of bronze to join the tent together so that it would be a unit. He made a covering for the tent of ram skins, dyed red, and a covering of porpoise skins above. Then he made the boards for the tabernacle of acacia wood, standing upright. Ten cubits was the length of each board, and one and a half cubits the width of each board. There were two tenons for each board, fitted to one another. Thus he did for all the boards of the tabernacle. He made the boards for the tabernacle, twenty boards for the south side, and he made forty sockets of silver under the twenty boards, two sockets under one board for its two tenons, and two sockets under another board for its two tenons. 
Then for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, he made 20 boards, and there 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under one board and two sockets under another board. For the rear of the tabernacle to the west, he made six boards. He made two boards for the corners of the tabernacle at the rear. They were double beneath, and together they were completed to its top, to the first ring. Thus he did with both of them for the two corners. There were eight boards with their sockets of silver, 16 sockets, two under every board. Then he made bars of acacia wood, five for the boards of one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the tabernacle for the rear side to the west. He made the middle bar to pass through in the center of the boards from end to end. He overlaid the boards with gold and made their rings of gold as holders for the bars and overlaid the bars with gold. Moreover, he made the veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, and he made it with cherubim, the work of a skillful workman. He made four pillars of acacia for it and overlaid them with gold with their hooks of gold, and he cast four sockets of silver for them. He made a screen for the doorway of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, the work of a weaver. And he made its five pillars with their hooks, and he overlaid their tops and their bands with gold, but their five sockets were of bronze. Now Beziel made the ark of acacia wood. Its length was two and a half cubits, and its width one and a half cubits, its height one and a half cubits. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and out, and made a gold molding for it all around. He cast four rings of gold for it on its four feet, even two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. He made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. He put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. He made a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. He made two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub at the one end and one cherub at the other end. He made the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at the two ends. The cherubim had their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and their faces toward each other like the faces of cherubim were toward the mercy seat. Then he made the table of acacia wood two cubits long and a cubit wide and one and a half cubits high. He overlaid it with pure gold and made a gold molding for it all around. He made a rim for it of handbreadth all around and made a gold molding for its rim all around. He cast four gold rings for it and put the rings on the four corners that were on its four feet. Close by the rim were the rings, the holders for the pole to carry the table. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold to carry the table. He made the utensils which were on the table, its dishes and its pans and its bowls and its jars which were to pour out drink offerings of pure gold. Then he made the lampstand of pure gold. He made the lampstand of hammered work, its base and its shaft, its cups, its bulbs and its flowers were one piece with it. There were six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand from one side of it and three branches of the lampstand from the other side of it. Three cups shaped like almond blossoms, a bulb and a flower in one branch and three cups shaped like almond blossoms, a bulb and a flower in the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. In the lampstand, there were four cups shaped like almond blossoms, its bulbs and its flowers, and a bulb was under the first pair of branches coming out of it. And a bulb under the second pair of branches coming out of it and a bulb under the third pair of branches coming out of it for the six branches coming out of the lampstand. Their bulbs and their branches were of one piece with it. The whole of it was a single hammered work of pure gold. He made its seven lamps with its snuffers and its trays of pure gold. He made it and all its utensils from a talent of pure gold. Then he made the altar of incense of acacia wood, a cubit long and a cubit wide, square and two cubits high. Its horns were of one piece with it. He overlaid it with pure gold, its top and its sides all around, and its horns, and he made a gold molding for it all around. He made two golden rings for it under its moldings, on its two sides, on opposite sides, as holders for poles with which to carry it. He made the poles of acacia wood, and he overlaid them with gold. And he made the holy anointing oil and the pure fragrant incense of spices, the work of a perfumer. Then he made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide, square, and three cubits high. He made its horns on its four corners, its horns being of one piece with it, and, its, and, he, and he overlaid it with bronze. He made all the utensils of the altar, the pails and the shovels and the basins, the flesh hooks and the fire pans. He made all its utensils of bronze. He made for the altar a grating of bronze network beneath under its ledge, reaching halfway up. He cast four rings on the four ends of the bronze grating as holders for the poles. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. He inserted the poles into the rings of the sides of the altar with which to carry it. He made it hollow with planks. Moreover, he made the labor of bronze with its base of bronze from the mirrors of serving women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Then he made the court. For the south side, the hangings of the court were a fine twisted linen, 100 cubits. Their 20 pillars and their 20 sockets made of bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were of silver. For the north side, there were 100 cubits. Their 20 pillars and their 20 sockets were of bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were of silver. 
For the west side, there were hangings of 50 cubits with their 10 pillars and their 10 sockets. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were of silver. For the east side, 50 cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate were 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. And so for the other side. On both sides of the gate of the court were hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. All the hangings of the court all around were of fine twisted linen. The sockets for the pillars were of bronze, the hooks of the pillars and their bands of silver, and the overlaying of their tops of silver, and all the pillars of the court were furnished with silver bands. The screen of the gate of the court was the work of a weaver, of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. All the length was 20 cubits and the height was 5 cubits, corresponding to the hangings of the court. Their four pillars and their four sockets were of bronze, their hooks were of silver, and the overlaying of their tops and their bands were of silver. All the pegs of the tabernacle and all the court all around were of bronze. This is the number of the things for the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony, as they were numbered according to the command of Moses for the service of the Levites by the hand of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. Now, Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the son of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord had commanded Moses. With him was Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and a skillful workman and a weaver in blue and in purple and in scarlet material and fine linen. All the gold that was used for the work in all the work of the sanctuary, even the gold of the wave offering, was 29 talents and 730 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The silver of those of the congregation who were numbered was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A becca ahead, that is half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for each one who passed over to those who were numbered from 20 years old and upward for 603,550 men. The hundred talents of silver were for casting the sockets of the sanctuary and the sockets of the veil, 100 sockets for the hundred talents and a talent for a socket. Of the 1,775 shekels, he made hooks for the pillars and overlaid their tops and made bands for them. The bronze of the wave offering was 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. With it, he made the sockets to the doorway of the tent of meeting and the bronze altar and its bronze grating and all the utensils of the altar and the sockets of all the court all around and the sockets of the gate of the court and all the pegs of the tabernacle and all the pegs of the court all around. Do that all in one breath. That's the longer of the two sections. We're pausing here to note mainly two things. First, Look at all the work one man did. Virtually everything Bezalel does by himself, with the exception, we're told, of some of the weaving and the engraving of these other men. It, It could have meant that he supervised it all, but it credits him with all. Never underestimate what one person's work can mean to the work of God. It is not a matter of you or your ability or your dedication even. It's a matter of what God intends to do with you. It's 99% showing up. And Bezalel showed up, so to speak. And as a result, he's forever recorded as the man who did all of that work. So it's a reminder that we show up because God can use us. The second thing I want to point out here is just how much material they had and its value. All the gold used, we're told, was 29 talents and 730 shekels. Now, coin money was not invented until many centuries after this day. So at this point in human history, there was no coin money. Value was simply in raw materials. And so the measure of a shekel or a talent is a measure of weight, not of a coin or of a number of objects. So in terms of weight, the amount of gold you're looking at here is approximately 2,000 pounds or a ton. Today, that's $47 million worth of gold. The silver would have been about four tons, about 8,000 pounds. That's worth about $3 million today. And it says the silver was taken in that atonement process we studied already, in which everyone who was over 20 years old had to give at least that small amount, that becca, which he says is half a shekel. And as a result of that modest amount each person gave, they arrived at nearly four tons worth of silver. And of course, they were told in the course of that collection to do a census of those in the nation of Israel. That was the purpose. In fact, he said, don't ever do a census without taking that atonement money. And so in the process, they counted 603,550 men. That's where we arrive at the guesstimate of two million Jews in the desert, based on the fact that if you have that many adult men, then you can estimate some number of children and some number of women to go with that. 
So you end up at roughly two million people in the desert. On the flip side, if God can take one man and do so many great things, everyone's got a place in the plan as well. So it reflects on both ends of the spectrum when you see him saying that one man built it all, but everyone gave at least half a shekel. It reflects the fact that there is no one in the body of Christ who has nothing to offer. Not all of us are Bezalel, but everyone has at least half a shekel. All the bronze, by the way, was about two and a half tons. To show you the relative value, that's only worth about $11,000. All right, this is our final section for the book. We're going to do chapter 39 through chapter 40, and then we'll do another quick moment of observation. Moreover, from the blue and purple and scarlet material, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place as well as the holy garments, which were for Aaron, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He made the ephod of gold and of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. Then they hammered out gold sheets and cut them into threads to be woven in the blue and the purple and the scarlet material and the fine linen, the work of a skillful workman. They made attaching shoulder pieces for the ephod. It was attached at its two upper ends. The skillfully woven band which was on it was like it, its workmanship of the same material of gold and of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made the onyx stones set in gold filigree settings. They were engraved like the engravings of a signet, according to the names of the sons of Israel. And he placed them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He made the breast piece. The work of a skillful workman, like the workmanship of the ephod, of gold and of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. It was square. They made the breast piece folded double, a span long and a span wide when folded double. And they mounted four rows of stones on it. The first row was a row of ruby, topaz and emerald. And the second row, a turquoise, a sapphire and a diamond. The third row, a jacinth, an agate and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx and a jasper. They were set in gold filigree settings when they were mounted. The stones were corresponding to the names of the sons of Israel. They were 12 corresponding to their names engraved with the engraving of a signet, each with its name for the 12 tribes. They made on the breastpiece chains like cords of twisted cordage work in pure gold. They made two gold filigree settings and two gold rings and put the two rings on the two ends of the breastpiece. Then they put the two gold cords in the two rings at the ends of the breastpiece and they put the other two ends of the two cords on the two filigree settings and put them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod at the front of it. They made two gold rings and placed them on the two ends of the breastpiece on its inner edge, which was next to the ephod. Furthermore, they made two gold rings and placed them on the bottom of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod on the front of it, close to the place where it joined above the woven band of the ephod. They bound the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a blue cord so that it would be on the woven band of the ephod and that the breastpiece would not come loose from the ephod just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he made the robe of the ephod of woven work, all of blue, and the opening of the robe was at the top in the center as the opening of a coat of mail with a binding all around its opening so that it would not be torn. They made pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet material and twisted linen on the hem of the robe. They also made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates all around on the hem of the robe, alternating a bell and a pomegranate all around on the hem of the robe for the service, just as the Lord had commanded Moses." They made the tunics of finely woven linen for Aaron and his sons and the turban of the fine linen and the decorated caps of fine linen and the linen breeches of fine twisted linen and the sash of fine twisted linen and blue and purple and scarlet material, the work of a weaver, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and inscribed it like the engravings of a signet, holy to the Lord. They fastened a blue cord to it to fasten it on the turban above, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Thus, all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was completed. And the sons of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. They brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its furnishings, its clasps, its boards, its bars and its pillars and its sockets. And the covering of ram skins dyed red and the covering of porpoise skins and the screening veil, the ark of the testimony and its poles and the mercy seat, the table, all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the pure gold lampstand with its arrangement of lamps and all its utensils and the oil for the light and the gold altar and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the veil for the doorway of the tent, the bronze altar and its bronze grating, its poles and its utensil, all its utensils, the laver and its stand. The hangings for the cord, its pillars and its sockets and the screen for the gate of the cord, its cords and its pegs and all the equipment for the service of the tabernacle for the tent of meeting. The woven garments for ministering in the holy place and the holy garments for Aaron, the priest and the garments of his sons to minister as priests. So the sons of Israel did all the work according to all the Lord had commanded Moses and Moses examined all the work. 
And behold, they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. This they had done. So Moses blessed them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall place the ark of the testimony there, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. You shall bring in the table and arrange what belongs on it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and mount its lamps. Moreover, you shall set the gold altar of incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the veil for the doorway to the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering in the front of the doorway of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall set the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. You shall set up the court all around and hang up the veil for the gateway of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and shall consecrate it and all its furnishings and it shall be holy. You shall anoint the altar burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar and the altar shall be most holy. You shall anoint the laver and its stand and consecrate it. And you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. You shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him that he may minister as a priest to me. You shall bring his sons and put tunics on them. You shall anoint them even as you have anointed their father, that they may minister as priests to me and their anointing will qualify them for a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. Thus Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. So he did. Now in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle and laid its sockets and set up its boards and inserted its bars and erected its pillars. He spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent on top of it, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he took the testimony and put it into the ark and attached the poles to the ark and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. He brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up a veil for the screen and screened off the ark of the testimony, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil. He set the arrangement of bread in order on it before the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle. He lighted the lamps before the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the veil. And he burnt fragrant incense on it, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he set up the veil for the doorway of the tabernacle. He set the altar burnt offering before the doorway of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the meal offering, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He placed the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing from it. Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet when they entered the tent of meeting. And when they approached the altar, they washed just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He erected the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the veil for the gateway of the court. Thus, Moses finished the work. Then. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. So the chapter opens in chapter 39 with the final words God gives to Moses concerning uh, the construction of the tabernacle. In fact, the final words we hear from God in the entire story of Exodus. And in those words, he commands that you're going to build this building now that you have all the materials and you're going to build it on the first day of the first month. That is exactly one year from their departure from Egypt and nine months since arriving at the mountain. And that tells us, as we discussed a little while ago, that several months were required for the people to do all of this building of the materials. And now Lord tells Moses, once you have all these materials, let's move them into place and let's set up the building. And once again, the construction starts, you notice, with the Holy of Holies and moves outward again. The final step is to put up the courtyard around the tabernacle. And from that moment forward, none, no one but the priests are able to see any of those wonderful things that are inside the tabernacle. When they were moved between places, they were always covered and could not be seen as they were taken out. And so in this building process, that was the only generation of Israel to see all of the insides of that tabernacle other than the priesthood. Once the building was in place, we're told in chapter 40, the Lord comes down to indwell this building and he does so to make his presence visible, his residence among men, among sinful men, visible. In this first occupation, the Lord's presence, we're told, comes down. And they're talking now the very first time he occupies. It comes down in such a way that it prevents even Moses from entering the tent. 
Now, that's not the norm. This is something that comes as a function of the very first moment God occupies the tabernacle. He takes it all for himself. Normally and thereafter, the Lord simply occupies the space above the mercy seat. But in this opening moment, he occupies it all. That should raise a question, or let's raise it if it didn't. Why is there no temple for the Lord on earth today? Why doesn't the Lord dwell somewhere where men can see him today? Trick question. The answer is he does. That's right. During the dispensation of the church, during this age in which we are waiting for the Lord to return for the church, the temple of God on earth is the body of every believer. Collectively, we are the temple of God. So where beforehand God indwelled the Jewish temple so that men could see a visible presence of God dwelling with his people, today he indwells the church. In a future day, which for those of you who studied Revelation with me, you know this. In a future day, in the millennial kingdom that is that, that will arrive on earth, the Lord will physically once again reside with men in the temple. The Lord will reside in the temple in Jerusalem. So between the temple of Israel in the earlier day and the temple that will come in the time of the millennial kingdom, in this in-between stage of God's plan, he has a different style of temple, but still a temple. And so he is consistently dwelling with his people. And for the time being, it is through the church. So consider that the same power you just read occupying the tabernacle such that not even Moses could enter it. That very same power now resides in you by faith. How did the Lord demonstrate his presence to the people in that day and to the world in that day? By occupying a temple or tabernacle in such a way that his glory was visible to other people, to the people of Israel and to the world at large. His glory shone in the temple, and it says it did so whether day or night he could be seen. His presence could be seen. So now, considering that, listen to 2 Corinthians 6.16. Paul says, Of what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 1 Corinthians 6.17. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Then Jesus says this in Luke 8:16. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. And then finally, Jesus says in Matthew 5:14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand and gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. So if we are to be the full measure of God's temple on earth, then it is not enough to simply say he has a place where he can spend some time. It is to say he has a place from which he may glorify himself through the display of his glory in our lives. So let's allow that light in us, the temple that we have in our bodies, to shine in such a way that the glory of God's spirit indwelling us has visible evidence to the outside world, giving God glory just as he intended. And that's the end of the study. I appreciate your patience tonight with the long passages. I hope you enjoyed a chance to to sit back and, and listen to it. But in any case, I hope you got something out of it. We'll do something in uh, the fall, but in the meantime, enjoy your summer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for completing a book in our presence, for spelling it out in such clear ways through your spirit. For the reminder, Father, of how you supply every need, call men and equip them to serve you. Direct us into all righteousness. Equip us so that we may serve you in the right ways. Father, give us faith to believe that, courage to live by that, confidence, Father, to expect that. And thank you, Father, for the reminder that in all that we do in serving you and in relying on you and in testifying to you that we serve a very important and holy purpose in your plan. In our individual lives, we are the temple of God. We are that tabernacle, that building that was of such awe to each of us. And 
And in the descriptions of your occupying it, Father, with your glory so great that no man could enter, we now are the living example of that very same thing. I pray, Father, that we would do that honor, the justice that it deserves, that we would keep ourselves holy, that we would walk in the Spirit, and that as we go about our lives awaiting your return for for us and for the church, that we would uh, do everything we can to testify to you by our works. And may we come back to study again, Father, and again and again until the day we are with you face to face. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.